Alright, I trust you still have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, you should be able to find your way uh, to 1 Corinthians fairly easy. And just think how easily you're going to find it as we continue uh, on through the book. We'll be, uh, as Ben read earlier, we'll be in verses 10 uh, through 17 uh, this morning. You know, not too long ago, I, I was having a conversation uh, with somebody who was new to our area, and it's always fascinating to me to talk to folks who are new, uh, you know, come from different parts of the country or, or whatever. But this conversation that I was having, they were they were just absolutely shocked at the number of churches in our in our area. And you know, we we pass by those churches all the time, and sometimes they just blend into the background, and we don't we don't really recognize how many church buildings that we see. Well, that initially surprised him. But what surprised him even more was when I told him that somewhere between 60 and 80% of the people around here never darken the door of those churches. Now, does that shock you? Between 60 and 80% of our neighbors never even though you can't swing a stick without hitting a church building somewhere, sixty between 60 and 80% of our neighbors never darken the door of a church. If you break that down into actual numbers, you know, percentages, they can get kind of mixed up in our head, but if you break that down into actual numbers, that's somewhere between sixty and 80,000 people in Mercer and Tazewell counties who never go to church. Somewhere between 60 and 80,000 people in the two counties that we sit right in the middle of. That's sad, isn't it? That's sad. But I think what's even more sad about that is that most of those people, at one time or another, went to church. See, that's not the case. And, you know, we, we just saw in the missions moment about Massachusetts. And in parts of our country, there are significant numbers of unchurched people, people that for generations their family haven't gone to church. They don't even, they don't even go to church for funerals or for Christmas or for anything. They just don't, they just don't, that's not part of their culture. That's not the case here. We have large numbers of people who never go to church, but instead of being unchurched, they're de-churched. They started off as church. They might have they might have gone to church with their grandparents, or you know, gone to VBS in the summertime, or even gone to church as an adult. But now they won't even think about darkening the door of a church. So, so why is that the case? Why are there so many of our neighbors that at one time in their history were in church, but now they're not? There's lots of reasons, I'm sure, and when you start asking people, they'll give you all kinds of reasons. They'll give you all kinds of excuses. But one reason I hear over and over and over and over again is that people no longer go to church because of some event or some broken relationship or some feuding and fighting and fussing 
that has gone on in a church in their past. Church split, a fight, ugly business meetings. And they don't want to be part of that anymore. They've seen the They've seen the rock turned over and seen a bunch of things crawl out that they didn't want to see. And they don't want to see that anymore. You know, all of us, and sometimes it turns into almost a morbid joke, but I think all of us have seen and heard about churches fussing and fighting over just the most nonsensical stuff that you can imagine. You know, we've all heard stories about churches that, that get in fights and split over the color of the carpet or over what color to paint a door. Just crazy stuff that churches will fight over. I've personally seen, <clears throat> I, I don't know, I've never, I've always heard the story about churches fighting over the color of the carpet. I've, I've never, I've never actually, that might be apocryphal. I've, I've never actually known that to happen. But I have been, been closely involved with churches that fight over everything from floor tile, whether you use floor tile or carpet, and half the folks think carpet and half the folks think floor tile, and they want to just practically take up arms over that. I've seen that fight. I've seen, I've seen fights over lawn maintenance. <laughs> I, I've seen, I've seen a church Fight like yelling and, and screaming at each other over the presence of one strand of one cobweb on one underside of one pew. How ridiculous. How petty. It's just, it's just mind blowing. I've seen business meetings break out, not here, praise God. I've seen business meetings break out into two hours' worth of yelling and name-calling. Just ungodly, unchristlike behavior. I know of one church, <laughs> I won't name it, but I know of one church that has two kitchens in it. Now, this isn't some mega church. It's just uh, I think their attendance probably is right around where ours is. That church has two kitchens in it. You know why it's got two kitchens in it? Because one group wanted to put a dishwasher in the kitchen. And the ladies that thought they owned that kitchen said, ain't no way you're going to cut the counter to put a dishwasher in this kitchen. So rather than figure it out and deal with it, they just built another kitchen. <laughs> so here's this little church that's got two kitchens. One of them has a dishwasher. Also know of a church where one-third of the dwindling congregation left because the pastor, they had an overflow area and the pa- with, a, with, a, with a door. And the pastor said, since nobody's sitting in the overflow area, we'll just close the door. So it doesn't look like we've got all these... After he did that, one-third of the remaining dwindling congregation left over seats that nobody was sitting in. That does just break your heart. I mean, one thing, we, we, we kind of we laugh at those things because they're so ridiculous. 
but between 60 and 80% of our population won't darken the door of a church because of experiences like that that they've had to endure. Churches are notorious for having knockdown, drag out business meetings. Some of my pastor friends are absolutely shocked to hear that I actually invite guests to come to our business meetings. <laughs> and the reason I ask guests to come to our business meetings is because we don't do that, do we? I mean, we don't argue and fuss and fight and all that kind of stuff. I am so thankful. I praise God for the way that we conduct business here at Parkview. For those of y'all who were here this past Wednesday, I guess that y'all listened to me. I got a little cantankerous at the end of the service and kind of fussed about people not coming to business meetings. So we had a record turnout for a business meeting this past Wednesday. And it, it was, I, I think, I think Clyde said, am I in the wrong place when, <laughs> when, when that happened? But I mean, it was beautiful to see that. But what was even more beautiful than seeing everybody that showed up was, well, now it was a long business meeting. It was a long business meeting because we had a lot of business to cover. But what was beautiful about it was that we laughed. We, we discussed things, we handled important business, but we loved on each other in the middle of it. And here's the crazy thing. You know, usually business meetings, you know, these, some of the past business meetings I've seen in other places, people want to get out of there after the fighting and all that stuff. They want to get out of there as quick as possible. People wanted to hang around Wednesday night after the business meeting to the point that I had to shut the lights off because I was hungry and I wanted to go home. <laughs> People just hanging around and, and loving on each other and having fun. As always, we took care of very important things, but we took care of very important things like family does. And as always, we left that night with an amazing, beautiful sense of harmony and unity and family. No division. That's the spirit in a church that will not only reach people for Jesus, it will keep and develop and grow and multiply people for Jesus. And that's what we're seeing. And I'm so thankful for it. Listen to me. Nothing does more damage to the witness of Christ in a community than a church that is divided and fighting. Did you hear me? Nothing does more damage than that. You've seen it. I've seen it. I thank God we're not seeing it here, and I pray to God that we never will see it here. They were seeing it at the church at Corinth. They were seeing this exact same thing. So before Paul addressed anything else with them, before he got to anything doctrinal or any of the specifics with them, he addressed, right up front, he addressed their fussing and fighting right here in this passage that we're looking at this morning. We need to understand, when we see this, even though we're not experiencing it right now, we need to understand that humbly. We need to be humble about that. Because the reality is we're only one decision or one meeting or one dumb conversation away from unity disappearing or from strife happening. 
We don't need to be afraid of it. We just need to be aware of it. So that's why Paul's passage here in this letter is so applicable to us. We need to see what we're not experiencing so that we, at all costs, avoid experiencing it in the future. This passage is like a is like a road sign that has flashing lights that says warning, potential danger ahead, use caution. That's what we're looking at this morning. Paul starts with his appeal there in verse 10, but we'll come back to the appeal later. Before we get to verse 10, we're going to start with verses 11 and 12 and look at the situation that was going on at the church at Corinth. So look at verses 11 and 12 with me. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Now, quarreling, when, when you think of quarreling, you might think a little bickering. The, the original word that's behind that, it's, they were in, they were in some serious strife. He says, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. (laughs) You see how Paul referred to these folks at the very beginning? He called them Chloe's people. And we don't know anything about Chloe or anything like that, but but there's a problem with that, isn't there? When immediately he identifies people by this group. The fact is, factions always follow fractious people. That's the downside of the gift of leadership, isn't it? You know, we pray a lot. We regularly pray that God would raise up leaders in our midst. And we we want God, we have a deep desire for God to raise up good, godly leaders in our church. Not just in our church, but in our schools, in our workplaces, in our government, in our community, in our area. We, we want Him to raise up leaders out of here that can that can lead in all of those areas. And we work hard to identify gifts of leadership and encourage those gifts of leadership and try the best that we can to develop those leaders in our midst. And when those gifts of leadership, when they're, when they're encouraged and when they're nurtured and when they're developed, when we see those start to grow and start to blossom, those leaders are an incredible blessing. But when those gifts of leadership start to go rogue or lose their humility... Man, they can cause irreparable damage. They can cause irreparable damage to our work. They can cause irreparable damage to our witness. And a sure sign uh, when a leader uses his gifts and start to go rogue is when leaders cause people to hive off into different camps and they become Chloe's people or when they start building coalitions around themselves. Clicks and camps and coalitions, those things are not church. They're contrary to the family that God's called us to be. Look at the camps that the church at Corinth was dividing into. They had Team Paul. They had Team Apollos. They had Team Peter. Now Cephas, you see Cephas in your, uh, in, in your, in the passage there. Cephas was another name for Peter. That was, that was his other name. So they had Team Paul, Team Apollos, Team Peter, and then there were the super spiritual people, right? So, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't listen to any of them. I just listen directly to Jesus. I'm on Team Jesus. That sounds good on the surface, but it's really just they were 
acting more spiritual than they were because they were using that as an excuse to hive off and divide off and be their own coalition or their own clique. See, what they were failing to realize is that Team Paul and Team Apollos and Team Peter, they were all on the same team and that is, and they were all on Team Jesus. Team Jesus was the unifier, not the division. But the people refused to follow Paul and Apollos and Peter as they were following Christ. They refused to follow them as they were following Christ and instead they wanted to hive off into different cult of personality. They wanted to follow the personalities. Listen to me, I, I, I like to think, maybe it's a fantasy or whatever, but I like to think that God has given me, you know, just a, at least a, a smidgen, a modicum of, of leadership ability. But don't ever follow me because of me. Amen? Don't ever follow me because of anything about me. If you think I can preach, if you think I can teach, if you think I can lead, whatever you think about me, don't follow me for those things. I only ask that you follow me as I follow Christ. That's the only way that this will work. See, otherwise, if you follow me for any of those other things, what it does is it puffs up my head to just um, unimaginable levels and following following a leader for their giftedness or for their personality or for any of those things what it does is it would destroy me and it would destroy you and it'll destroy this church and it'll destroy our gospel witness in our community so i ask i beg that you only follow me as i follow christ see jesus is the head of this church amen i'm not the head of this church Now, God has given me a leadership position in this church under Him as His under-shepherd. But Jesus is the head of this church, not me, not your deacons, not your teachers, not anyone else in this church. There are no Chloe's people in this church. Jesus is the only one who paid for this church with His blood. So He's the only one that we can truly unite under. See, the situation in Corinth was one of quarreling and strife and division, which brings us to the seriousness of their situation. Look at verses 13 through 17. See how he starts off 13 there. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one... so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then it's like he has a second thought. He says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. That's encouraging to me Who, you know, when I forget stuff. I'm like, well, Paul forgot too. So, Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Think about it. Um, I think many of us in here follow some sort of sports team. We, we enjoy the competition of sports team. But if a sports team has divisive factions on it, what happens? What's the worst thing that can happen to that sports team? It's going to lose games, right? 
If there's divisiveness on the team, it's, it's going to lose games. If a classroom, if a classroom at school hives off into click, click, clicks, I can't even say the word, hives off into little groups, <laughs> then what's the worst thing that can happen? They're not going to learn. If fussing and fighting happens at the workplace, what's going to happen? What's the worst that can happen? Productivity can go down, people can get fired, businesses can close, the local economy can be impacted. But that's all. Now those are, those are certainly not good things. They're, they're impactful things. But what happens when there's division in a church? You want to talk about impact. When there's division in a church, the impact is eternal. When strife and conflict and division happen in the church, people can end up eternally suffering in hell because of it. Oh, preacher, you're getting a little drastic. Really? Think about those sixty to 80,000 people who aren't bringing their children to church because of bad experiences that they had. Division in the church does three things. The first thing that division in the church does is it displays a false gospel to a watching world. When, when the world sees Christ followers, that's what he's talking about here. When he says, is Christ divided? When the world sees Christ followers, people who bear the name of Christ, people who call themselves Christians, when they see that we're divided and we can't get along, then they can get the false impression that Christ is divided. So, hey, you churches, you know, you're just all over the place, so Christ must be divided. When they see churches following personalities rather than following Christ, then they can start to think that those personalities are more important to the church than the crucifixion is. Division in the church always displays a false gospel to a watching world. It also destroys the picture of the gospel. You wonder why Paul brings up this picture of the gospel with baptism. In, in, in baptism. That's why he brings it up in verses 14 through 16. See, what happens when we're baptized is we're showing the world that we're a new creation in Christ. We've been buried with Him in baptism and we're raised to walk a new life in Him. The old self has passed away and all things become new. That's what we're showing. That's what we're displaying. We're displaying the gospel. What's happened to us when we're baptized? But listen, how can we be selflessly buried with Christ if we keep selfishly insisting on having our own way? You see the contradiction? How can we be raised to walk a new life in Jesus when we selfishly insist on having everything according to our own way and our own tastes and our own wants and our own desires? If Jesus is really the boss of your life, which is what you're displaying when you say that you're dead in Him and raised to walk a new life in Him, if Jesus is really the boss of your life, why in the world do you try to boss others around to try to get your way instead of His way? You see how it displays? Destroys that picture? The vision of the church always displays a false gospel. It always destroys baptism as the picture of the gospel. It also distracts from proclaiming the gospel. In verse 17, 
Paul in that kind of offhand comment, I don't even remember who I baptized. And it can make it sound like he's downplaying the importance of baptism. But that's not what he's doing at all. What he's doing is he's emphasizing the importance of proclaiming the gospel. Because here's the reality. Nobody's going to get baptized unless they get saved. And nobody's going to get saved unless the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. Amen? As we see all around us, nothing has hindered the gospel witness in our community more than fussing and fighting churches. Instead of pointing people to Jesus like the church is supposed to do, they're pointing people away from Jesus. And those people who've been turned away from Jesus will suffer an eternity in hell. You see the gravity of this? You see why he nails this right in the beginning of his letter? Yes, church division is a huge deal. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. So that takes us back up to Paul's appeal in verse 10. So look back up there with me. He says, I appeal to you brothers. And and that word appeal, it carries the idea of, of urging or persuading or even getting down on his knees and begging these people. You might have another version that uses the word exhort or urge or even plead. That carries the the urgency of what Paul is saying there. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. When Paul uses that word, that word appeal or urge, it's not a harsh command. He's not, he's not puffing up his apostolic authority, which he did have apostolic authority. He's not puffing that up and giving them a, and giving them a command or an order. He's not bossing them around. Now what he's doing is he's coming alongside them and he's putting his arm around them and he's calling them to go along with him. He's begging them with tears in his eyes. Don't be divided. Agree with each other. Be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So in the little bit of time that we have left, I want us to think about what that looks like. Think about what that looks like to not be divided. In order to do that, we're going to answer four questions. The first question is, who does Paul's appeal apply to? Who's he talking to here? See, ever since the Tower of Babel, back, way back in Genesis chapter 11, people have tried to organize themselves in a global sense in such a way that, that recognize their deep desire for unity. Whether you're talking about anything from the Tower of Babel all the way to the United Nations, people and governments have, have tried to create things just out of their expression, their desire, for unity, but each of those attempts is every bit as futile as the Tower of Babel was. Because the only means that God has given us for true unity is His Son. See, this passage is not an attempt to bring unity to the world. It's not even an attempt to bring unity in our community or our town. 
As much as we might desire for those things, that's not what he's talking about here because apart from Christ, those things are impossible. No, what it's telling us is how to be united within the context of a local church. What he's telling us here is how we can be united at Parkview Baptist Church, the membership, the family of Parkview Baptist Church, the membership, the family of the church at Corinth. He's speaking directly to us because that's the only place where Christ is exalted to the point that we can truly have something someone to unify around. In other words, if we want to keep this beautiful unity that God's giving us here at Parkview, this is the only way that we can do it. So the appeal is to the local church. The appeal is to us. That's the answer to the first question. The second question is, what must we agree on? Paul says that we're to be united in the same mind and united in the same judgment. About what? About everything? I'm a Broncos fan. That's when y'all might say, bless your heart. Except Anthony. Anthony's a Broncos fan too. (laughs) So since I'm a Broncos fan and since Anthony's a Broncos fan, does that mean, is Paul saying that we all have to be Broncos fans and all Patriots fans have to be converted? Amen. Amen. Is that what that means? Of course not. That's silly, even though it would be a wonderful thing. (laughs) It's silly. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What what he's saying is we're to be united in the same mind around the core doctrines of Scripture. We're to be united in the same judgment about how we apply those core doctrines to accomplish the mission that God has given us. What we believe... And how we apply what we believe, those things are essential to who we are as a church. If we don't agree on those things as a church, then there's we don't have anything to be united around. We'll never be united if we don't agree on those things. Now, at the end of the service, we're, we're going to be blessed. Um, you saw I forgot to get the chairs before the service, so during the offertory I had to get up and get some chairs. We're going to be blessed at the end of the service to get to commission four new covenanted members of Parkview Baptist Church. Each of those four new members have walked through the process to become part of part of this family. Each of them has testified to their saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Master and Savior. Each of them has publicly proclaimed that faith by being baptized as a believer. Each of them has studied and affirmed the doctrinal positions of our church. Each of them has learned and bought into the values and the mission and the strategy of this church. And each of them has been welcomed into this family by that great crowd that we had at the business meeting on Wednesday by a unanimous vote. That's what it means to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It means that we believe the same things, about the core doctrines of Scripture, and we're unified in how we're going to implement those things. That's what it means. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, we got to get this clear because we're talking about the membership of the church. But everyone, whether they agree with that stuff or not, everyone, everyone 
is welcome to come and worship with us. Whether you agree with us or not, whether you have significant disagreement in belief or practice or not, everyone is welcome to join with us in worship. Everyone is welcome and encouraged to sit under the preaching and the teaching of God's Word in this place, whether you agree with us or not. We welcome and we love anybody and we love everybody who walks through those doors. But in order to be a covenanted member of this family, we must be united in the same mind around the core doctrines of Scripture. And we must be united in the same judgment about how we apply those doctrines to accomplish what God's called us to accomplish. So those are the things that we must agree on. So that brings us to the third question. If those are the things we got to agree on, then the third question is, what can we differ on? You ready for the answer? It's profound. Are you ready for this? Just about everything else. Except the Broncos fan. I'm still, that's still kind of up in the air. But we can differ on just about everything else. We don't have to have the same politics, which is going to be a challenge in this coming election year. We don't have to have the same politics. We don't have to have the same likes, the same tastes, the same preferences. We don't have to look the same way or act the same way or dress the same way. As a matter of fact, the more we're doing what Christ calls us to do, the less we will look the same and have the same backgrounds and have the same tastes and have the same opinions. See... If we all have looked the same and vote the same and act the same and all of those kinds of things come from the same background, then what we will end up doing is we'll try to make all of those surface things the thing that we unite around. And we're not called to do that. That can never be the case. Because the only thing that unifies us as a church is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall. You know, one way that we try to model that as a church is with our music. I've had people, I get a kick out of this when people ask me, they'll, they'll say, you know, when I'm talking to them about coming to visit the church or whatever, and, and some people will ask, they'll say, well, is your church contemporary or traditional? <laughs> uh, I'm laughing, but I hate that question. The reason that I hate that question is because I know what what they're trying to get at. What what people are meaning when they ask that question is they're looking for something like you would pick a radio station. I want I want to pick something that I like. I want to pick something that fits my own personal tastes or my own personal preferences. They want to pick a church like they pick their Pandora playlist. I heard a preacher tell a story one time about somebody about somebody that came up to him after the service uh, complaining <laughs> it's like sometimes people people do they said something like preacher I just didn't like the worship today he looked at him he said good we weren't worshiping you anyway <laughs> I don't know where he's pastoring now <laughs> that's a harsh statement but it's true isn't it We're not here to worship our tastes and preferences and desires. We're here to worship Jesus. 
But one person agreed. We're here to worship Jesus, right? It's a beautiful thing when people love their church family despite certain things that aren't quite in line with their personal preferences. They love their church family enough that they say, you know what, I don't really care for that, but man, I just love my church. And I love the fact that they might love that particular thing. As long as we're united in the same mind around the core doctrines of the Bible, and as long as we're united in the same judgment about how we apply those core doctrines to accomplish the mission God's given us, as long as we're united in those things, we can differ in all kinds of matters of taste and personal preference and still be amazingly united. United to the point that somebody will walk through those doors and have never seen anything like that before, and they'll ask the question, how can that be possible? Let me tell you how that can be possible. Because the final question is, where does that kind of unity come from? And Paul gives his answer in his appeal there in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, how? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, unity isn't something that we can gin up in ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, you know what? We're just going to be a united church. We can't do that. I could stand up here every Sunday and bang this pulpit demanding that there not be any divisions among us. And I have been in those churches and seen pastors try to bring unity that way just by hammering on it and hammering on it and hammering on it. But the only way that we've enjoyed the unity that we've enjoyed over the past few years and the only way that we'll continue to enjoy this kind of unity as we continue to grow and change, which by God's grace is happening every day, the only way that we can have unity in the midst of that changing and growing is by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not something that we can create. See, we can't create unity, but we're blessed with unity when each of us individually submits to Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior. We can be unified in Christ because He was broken for us. We can be forgiven of any divisiveness because Jesus suffered division when He was forsaken on the cross for us. Would you like to become a covenanted part of this unified family that God is creating here at Parkview? And the first thing that needs to happen is you need to be saved. You must be saved. And then you must testify to your salvation in the waters of baptism as a believer. And then come forward and tell the church that you want to start the membership process that I talked about earlier. After I pray and while we're singing the hymn of invitation, I invite you to come and talk to me about any of those decisions that you need to make. Whether you need to make the decision to be saved, whether you need to make the decision to follow Christ in baptism, or whether you need to make the decision to come and start the process to become a covenant member of this church. I'm going to pray, and then as we sing... If you need to make any of those decisions, you come.